So again, just a big thank you for being here. And as I think most of you know, over the last few months, we've been working our way through a series of teachings that are known as the Ten Parami. And these are ten skillful qualities of heart and mind, skillful qualities of character, that we get to strengthen in daily life, not only as a support for our meditation practice, but also as a support for living with more ease in the world, living more skillfully, with more contentment, with more freedom. Now, I know not all of you have been to all of the previous sessions, so I'll just give you the full list now for context. And again, as you listen to them, even if you've done this before, you might notice as you hear each of the ten, how does the heart respond? So some of them, there's a sense of, oh, yeah, and others, there's maybe a bit of, uh uh-oh, not sure about that one. It's just useful information. Okay, so here's the list. Generosity or dana. Ethical integrity, sila. Renunciation or relinquishment. Wisdom. Energy. Patience. Truthfulness, resolution and determination or resolve, kindness or metta, and equanimity. So last time I was here I spoke about truthfulness and tonight I want to move on to the next one which is adatana, usually translated as resolution and determination or resolve for short. And as with many of these parami words, resolve, I don't think it's a word that used that commonly in English anymore. Like many of the other qualities, it's not one that's maybe so highly valued in mainstream society. But I think I could go as far to say that without some degree of resolve, it's not going to be easy to make much progress on this path. So let's look at it a bit more closely. Just the etymology of this word is interesting what it's pointing to. So you know we've been referring to Ajahn Suchito's book. And according to him, Adi, as in Adatana, means further or highest or fullest. And the last part, Tana, is the same ending as the word Satipatthana, which you recognize as insight, establishments of mindfulness. So tāna is a foundation, a firm ground, a standing place. So this word suggests the most complete establishment, and it has come to mean resolve and determination. You could say firmness of purpose, being determined and committed and steadfast and unwavering and resolute and persistent. You get the idea in the face of life's obstacles and challenges. So it's about learning how to channel our energy so that it becomes a powerful inner resource, both in terms of our meditation practice and in our daily life, where it can be used to help us to meet some of the bigger challenges that all of us are facing. So I'll say more about that soon. But first, just I'd like to start exploring resolve in the context of our meditation practice. So as you heard, it has this quality of steadiness to it, of even of being fixed, 
fixed in the sense of being fixed on a goal. Now, fixed, but not fixated. Because one of the challenges of this parami is how to be firm without being rigid. So I forget the word someone used. What did you say, John, earlier? Gentle push? Or some way you had described it as gentle but firm. That's kind of what we're looking for. And it's actually all of these parami working together that supports them to not be distorted. So wisdom helps us to discern when we're getting too relaxed, too complacent, or the opposite, when we're getting too uptight and rigid. So this parami, again, similar to the energy and effort that we talked about the other day, it can bring up this tendency towards self-judgment. I don't know if any of you notice that when we hear it. <laughs> There's a big nod there. <laughs> when we hear about com- commitment and steadfastness and perseverance, the Gimme says, oh, I'm not doing it right. I'm not doing enough. Am I showing up as way I should be? So if self-judgment happens to come along with this parami, right there is an invitation to bring resolve to release the judgment about the lack of resolve. So that's part of what we can, where we need to, might need to bring our effort. And like I said at the beginning, all of you here, you've got resolve or you wouldn't have come here tonight. And, you know, it's easy to take that for granted. But there's a hundred other things you could be doing right now. But all of you came here tonight, in spite of the allure, perhaps, of watching TV, as someone mentioned, or spending time with friends, or just having a quiet night at home after a busy day at work. So you all know it does take some resolve to get over that hump of inertia and show up. But every time we do that, it builds that foundation a little more strongly. And just remembering, I think as Bruce said, when just remembering to have resolve is that crucial first stage that brings in more benefits. So Ajahn Suchito, in his book on the parami, he talks about each of the parami gets strengthened in three distinct stages. First, just by remembering that there is this possibility, there is this quality that we can develop. Then by applying it over and over and over in the face of whatever challenges we're dealing with. And then this helps us to finally trust it so completely. There's no doubt about its value. And it becomes more and more just a natural way that we show up in the world. So Ajahn Suchita says the parami are inclinations and potentials that we develop into clear intentions. Their development comes in three stages, the initiating, the gathering, and the completion. Initially, one brings the parami to mind. Even this much is useful. It means that the parami gets built in as a frame of reference, when perhaps other values, such as fun or convenience or style or worldly performance and success, might be taking over the mind. Then the gathering stage is where you apply the parami in the face of opposition. Something in you just doesn't want to bother or other people don't see the point. 
it's not convenient, and so on and so on. And then the third stage of completion is when you know that this parami will take you through any obstacle. You can give up your life for it. You realize, why not? Life is going to end anyway. Why not establish the mind in a position of strength while there's still time? So this first stage, the initiating stage, just bringing the topic of the parami to mind, like (coughs) we did earlier, just remembering, contemplating, oh, that is the possibility of resolve can be surprisingly powerful. And one place that many of us need it, some of you pointed to before, is in relation to establishing and to maintaining a regular meditation practice. Again, as some of you named, I think most of us lead lives that are not so conducive to being contemplative. Quite the opposite. You know, we're all subject to mainstream society and the financial and the time pressures and all the other commitments that we have, it's often difficult to meditate on a regular basis. Is that true? Or everyone here (coughs) regularly meditating every single day? You don't have to do a show of hands, but just just to get a sense. It's difficult, right? You put your hand down. (laughs) But you had the intention. You named it earlier. That's the first stage. So we might need, like you were, to consciously call on this parami of resolve. When, for example, the alarm goes off in the morning and our intention that we set the day before to get up and meditate straight away gets a little bit wobbly. Right there, can you remember the quality of resolve and just do it? Every time we do just do it, It strengthens that resolve muscle a little more. And eventually there comes a time when there's just no hesitation in the mind whatsoever. The alarm goes off, you get up, you meditate. It's that simple. And it's such a relief to get to that stage. Because then we realize, at least in my experience, before that, how much time and energy gets wasted in that negotiating and rationalizing and justifying and wondering and trying to convince ourselves and so on. So, for example, again, my own experience, I'd wake up and feel a bit tired. This little voice would say, yeah, just take today off. You've been pretty good this week. One day wouldn't hurt. And another voice would say, yeah, but you know, you really, it's better to keep the momentum going. And the other one would be like, But what about (laughs) self-care? Aren't you supposed to be kind to yourself? Wouldn't that be metta? And the other voice, no, meditation is kindness in the longer term. And there will be this back and forth and back and forth. And that in itself will be tiring. And so often I just go, oh, and just hit snooze and go back to sleep. Now, it's true. Sometimes if I really was exhausted, it would be the wise thing to do to sleep. But most of the time, that voice was just old habits, old conditioning, old patterns that were trying to resist my attempts to develop a healthier habit. And it took a while to recognize that inner dialogue as being itself diagnostic. Okay, what's going on here? Listening to these battling voices and just recognize, oh, that's resistance. Don't feed it, just do it. 
So it sounds like some of you might recognize that syndrome. And I just encourage you, if yes, then see if you can remember this parami of resolve. And Tanasaro Bhikkhu, who's an American monk, he wrote about this. One translation for resolve is determination. And we can actually make formal determinations in our practice. Some of you here have done Goenka practice, so you might know the vow hour where you make a determination, a vow to sit for the full hour without moving a muscle, without changing posture at all. So that's done in the service of strengthening resolve. Now, Tanasaro Bhikkhu says, making determinations can give strength to your practice. Otherwise, you just sit and meditate for a while, and when the going gets tough, okay, that's enough for today. You don't push your limits. And as a result, you don't get a taste of what lies outside the limits of your expectations. As the Buddha said, the purpose of the practice is to see what you've never seen before, to realize what you've never realized before. And many of these things that you've never seen or realized lie outside the limits of your imagination. In order to see them, you have to learn how to push yourself more than you might imagine. So again, this gentle push, as John said, and another situation where resolve is often needed is when going on retreat. And again, you may have had this experience. There's a wave of inspiration. You sign up for a retreat, and then as the time starts to get closer, but wavering can start to creep in might start to question that decision. And sometimes that wavering can be quite unconscious. And again, those voices start whispering, do you really think you're ready for this? Are you sure it's the right time? Hasn't your grandma not been that well lately? What good do you think this is going to do anyway? It would be so much nicer just to go on a relaxing holiday. Go on. (laughs) I'm sorry. Those voices can be so seductive, and at times people do give in to them, and they find all kinds of reasons why they need to cancel. And again, I'm speaking from my own experience as well. So we need to recognize these voices for what they are as manifestations of doubt. And then kindness understands it's actually for our long-term welfare and happiness to go on retreat. And then resolve helps us to stay steady with that original decision. And often, some of you may may have heard me say, I tell people the retreat actually starts when you sign up, not when you get to the retreat center. Because often when we do register for a retreat, all kinds of different inner and outer obstacles can show up. And if we understand that these obstacles are actually part of the process, they're to be expected, and that they're actually providing us with opportunities to strengthen our parami practice, then when we do eventually arrive at the retreat center, we'll be even in even better shape to navigate the challenges and, of course, the rewards of being on retreat. So a few years ago, a student told me that they'd signed up to do the three-month retreat at IMS, and it was coming up in about six months' time. And they said, but I don't know how I'm going to cope with the fear when I get there. And I said, well, how are you coping with the fear now? And they're like, oh, (laughs) it hadn't occurred to them to start working 
with the anxiety and the fear now. They were waiting until six months' time when they arrived and anticipating that it would be overwhelming. But of course, the more we can start gradually metabolizing the anxiety and the fear now, again, the better shape we'll be in when we do eventually come to be on retreat. So this process of orienting to resolve begins with the initiating stage and then the gathering of it. The gathering stage, as Ajahn Suchito describes it, is when you keep applying this parami in the face of opposition. Something in you doesn't want to bother. Other people don't see the point. It's not convenient, and so on. And I want to highlight Ajahn Suchito's point about the need to overcome opposition. Sometimes that opposition comes from outside. Like you said, other people don't see the point. So you tell someone you're going on retreat and they just look at you blankly or even respond with hostility. So there we might need to strengthen resolve. But just as often, the opposition is internal and it comes from inner conflict or struggle. One that somehow we end up sabotaging our own good intentions, even when we know on another level that we want and we need to make some kind of change. So although I said earlier that resolve isn't a quality that's common that much in mainstream society, one area where it does show up is in the classic New Year's resolution. So I wonder how many of you have made a New Year's resolution at some point in your life? Yes? How many of them have lasted? I'm guessing more didn't than did, at least back then. Maybe now that you have more of this parami of resolve, it's not so bad. But it's a very common pattern. Like we might tell ourselves, right, I'm going to meditate every day. I'm going to go to the gym seven mornings a week. I'm going to completely give up my addiction to coffee or social media or Netflix or whatever it might be. Maybe we do that for a few days, maybe a few weeks, but eventually we end up reverting to our old habits. And often I think this is because the underlying motivation underneath the resolution was based in some kind of aversion or self-judgment. And if we're unconsciously using the resolution to try and get away from something that we don't like about ourselves, it's often not so healthy. It often gets expressed in quite an extreme way. We do seem to be very binary creatures, very all or nothing. So if we tell ourselves, well, I've got too lazy, and then we say, okay, I'm going to get up at 6 a.m. every morning and go to the gym seven days a week. Or if we feel like we shouldn't be drinking so much coffee, we go cold turkey and tell ourselves we're never going to drink caffeine again. Or we come back from retreat and say, I'm going to sit an hour every morning, an hour every evening, and we're going to do that for the whole rest of our lives. But that's really a setup for failure. We skip one day of going to the gym, or we have one cup of coffee, or we miss our meditation for one day, and then we just, oh, hopeless failure, not doing that again. So we flip from binaries, all or nothing. But neuroscience has found, and I think the Buddhist teachings agree, that making small 
incremental changes over time is usually much more successful in the long run than these dramatic sort of all-or-nothing efforts. So what we need to do is pay attention to the attitude in the mind that's driving the resolve. Because if it's rooted in aversion or self-aversion, often it's not so sustainable in the long run. And I think perhaps this is why metta, kindness, comes right after resolve. Because kindness, goodwill, friendliness that Claire spoke about so beautifully last week, that can help soften the tendency to self-judgment and self-punishment. So again, sometimes when people hear this term resolve, they can think it's clenched jawed, gritted teeth, grim determination. And if we find we're on that side of the scale, it may be good to soften up a little. On the other hand, if we find ourselves more in the apathy, complacency, half-hearted, then we might need to refresh the quality of resolve. So in a way, resolve is a kind of a muscle that we can train ourselves to bring to. And I just mentioned these two arenas that are a kind of a training ground. Resolve in terms of our regular meditation practice, resolve in terms of going on retreat. And the more we keep strengthening resolve in these arenas, the more available it's going to be for us when the stakes get higher, when we have to deal with the inevitable crises that life brings us, such as health challenges or relationship stress or financial worries or just to name a few. Now, maybe not all of you here right now are having to deal with some of those bigger issues. Perhaps you have the good fortune at this moment to be living with relative ease. I don't know what's going on for all of you in your lives. But one challenge I know for sure that every one of us is affected by is the existential threat of climate change, the climate crisis. So for the short time we have left, I just would like to touch into how this parami of resolve, in fact, all the parami working together, might help support us to navigate this enormous global challenge that all of us are facing. Now, I know this is a topic we've touched into a few times in previous talks, but even so, just hearing this term, climate crisis, for many people, it evokes a subtle or not so subtle reaction of resistance. Maybe there's an inner shrinking or a looking at the time or a disconnection or a sort of stiffening into defense. At least that's still true for me sometimes when I hear this term. Part of me just goes, ugh. It can be quite slight, but I feel it. So I wanted to just take a moment to hear from any of you. When you hear this term climate crisis, what is your first intuitive, instinctive kind of response? Fear. Fear, yeah. Yeah, right there in the belly or the solar plexus, yeah. Yeah, numbing, yeah, numbing, dullness, dissociative, 
Yeah, protection, right? Yeah, natural. Yeah. Makes me feel powerless and yet it feels like everybody else is in, in action, not taking any action. Yep. Governments and things. And, it, and it, it's really sad. Yeah, so grief, inaction, powerlessness, sadness. Sorry, the last bit? Grief about inaction. Grief about inaction specifically. Yep. Irritation. Irritation. Yep. You don't, you don't want to talk about it, don't want to go there. What's that? <laughs> That's perfect. So you said you came here for a you came here for a comfortable evening and we're gonna talk about climate change. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's that's a natural response. Why would we want to go there? Why? That's a great you know, rhetorical question, and right there, I'm just pointing to, these are all natural, understandable responses. And they can be really strong. And so right there is the opportunity to bring resolve, to bring some willingness, even for the remaining 10 minutes. Bargain with yourself. Can you do it? Can you be with it? Just 10 minutes. <laughs> Who knows? Yes. Well, we can interpret short time on many different levels. It's good to keep that in mind. There is the delusion that we have plenty of time. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for amplifying the anxiety. So you notice, right, there's a range of different responses here. And I know some of you recently went to the online presentation by Jean Leonard that Wellington Insight organized. And Jean was talking about how to deal or how to relate skillfully to this, what she called eco-grief. And I listened to the recording of that event, and I was really struck by how much courage it takes to face into that to turn towards the reality of the climate crisis. Of course we'd rather be here for a comfortable evening. Of course. (laughs) So the resolve, the courage it takes to feel the pain, but and to use that pain as a motivator to fuel resolve, to fuel determination, to keep looking at our own lives. Are we as powerless as we think? are the ways we may be contributing to the problem and the ways that we might be able to make change wherever possible. And as as His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, it's always possible. Now, to be clear, he said that in relation to kindness. He said, be kind whenever possible. It's always possible. But we can think of that in terms of resolve. It's always possible. So the parami is supported all by each other and part of the power of resolve comes from being grounded in our commitment to non-harming and to living simply, to relinquishing some of that rampant consumerism that's so embedded in these mainstream capitalist-based societies. 
So in some of my earlier talks on renunciation or relinquishment and ethical conduct, our commitment to non-harming, I talked about how we're serious about living a more ethical life. If we're serious about being committed to non-harming, then the first two precepts about not killing living beings, not taking what's not freely offered, they need to include where and how we are harming the ecosystem that our lives depend on. And in some areas, we are going to have to renounce or relinquish some of the comfort and the convenience that most of us here, including me, are habituated to. And for most of us, this is where we need to bring in a lot of this power of resolve in the face of opposition. Again, as Ajahn Suchito describes, something in you doesn't want to bother Other people don't see the point. It's not convenient. I would add it's not comfortable. For sure, it's not convenient to live in ways that help to reduce our impact on the planet. But the parami of resolve might help to shore up our willingness to make that little bit of extra effort, maybe to take the bus or to cycle instead of jumping in the car. Maybe to eat less meat and dairy or cut down on food waste. Or maybe to spend time going to climate marches or writing submissions to parliament. Maybe changing the banks and the financial institutions that we use to ones that don't invest in fossil fuels. Just a few quick examples of actions we might take or maybe have already taken. And in a moment, I'd love to hear from you what you all are already doing. Now, in all of those examples, we might face some inner opposition. Apathy, overwhelm, grief, maybe guilt or shame as we look more carefully at our lifestyle. And here again, we need the parami of resolve to try to move us beyond the guilt and the shame and perhaps transform it into wholesome remorse. And that can help us have the inner strength to keep making the necessary changes So this is also where we need some reinforcement from the parami of equanimity. So equanimity helps us to stay balanced in the face of truth. The truth that no matter how skillfully we try to live, we're still going to impact the environment around us. Having been born, we have to feed ourselves and clothe ourselves and provide ourselves with shelter and support our families if we have them. And in this whole process, all of us are impacted by hugely influential societal structures that can leave us feeling powerless, as Liz said, powerless to effect change on the scale that seems necessary. But here again, equanimity is an inner resource that can give us, as a serenity prayer says, the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Now, speaking of the societal level structures that all of us are embedded in, we're not immune to the dominant values of individualism and the consequent fragmentation and isolation and alienation that I think so many people experience these days. And these too can reinforce our feeling of powerlessness. 
So again, as Ajahn Suchito names, other people don't see the point and we can feel even more undermined and despairing. But fortunately, all of us here, we have the resource of this community, the Sangha. When we meet together like we are with like-minded people, people who understand the difference between short-term gratification and the deeper happiness that comes from living in alignment with the truth, living in alignment with our commitment to not harming, then our individual resolve is strengthened by the collective resolve, the group resolve. And we also have the possibility to harness, to harvest our collective wisdom, as we will in a few minutes. So in relation to this need for action on the collective level, I was heartened recently to read an article about different types of hope by... Suzanne Moser. She's a German climate scientist who now lives in the US. And she advises governments and nonprofits and foundations about climate adaptation and the kind of changes we need to make to manage this world. And I posted this on my website recently. So some of you may have seen it, but I think I'd like to read just a little bit from what she says. Towards the end of the article, she talks about all different types of hope in relation to the climate crisis. And she says, hope doesn't hinge on a rosy picture of the future. I really believe that the amount of suffering and the amount of cruelty that we're capable of is very large. But I also believe that people do have a heart and are desperate for something other than what currently is. It involves relearning something that we once knew, at least on a species level, We keep talking about the three F's of fight, flight, or freeze. But there's a fourth one, and that's the one that actually helped us to survive. It's the forming of bonds. That's the fourth F. The forming of bonds or befriending. That's the piece that got us to cooperate as a species and recognize that we have greater advantage when we work together as opposed to everyone for themselves. This is biology. It's in the genetic history of our species. We're here because we cooperated. It's part of us. So the forming of bonds or the befriending, that's what we're doing here. And in that process, we have the opportunity to strengthen our own and each other's resolve so that all of us were better equipped to navigate the life challenges we're facing including this ultimate challenge of the climate crisis. So I'll leave it there for now, because I'd like to hear from you. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for some willingness to be uncomfortable. (laughs) So any responses, questions, reflections, how you have worked with resolve, either in your meditation practice or in relation to the climate crisis. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.